Amen. You may be seated. And I hope you have your outlines and your Bibles open. If not, the passage of Scripture will be up on the screen as well as in your outline. I'm so excited to be preaching this morning. I want to thank Pastor Andrew and the pastors here for letting me do this. Uh, This is a joy for me, especially to be among people that I love and that I know love me. And to be here with our family, I was here in June to see my grandfather who's not doing so well. And we got to celebrate his birthday this weekend, his 85th birthday. And we're so excited that we can be among family and friends for just a couple of days. Time is fleeting as always. And so even this morning, I want to be brief and I want to show you God's word. One of the beauties of expositional preaching is that I don't have to try to make something up. It takes the pressure off of me, really, because all I have to do is show you what the biblical text says, and you can breathe a sigh of relief, too, because what I'm saying to you is, is not what I thought about and made up. This has been written for centuries, and this is what God has told us, and this is what God wants us to hear. So praise God that Sheridan Hills teaches the Bible in an expository fashion, I feel bad for those pastors who come to church and feel the pressure of having to try to make something up and try to be flashy and trendy. God's word is anything but flashy and trendy. But you know what? It is good. It is hard, but it is good. And so I hope that we can get a good dose of scripture this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 9. One of the things that I, I, I love about living in North Carolina, as many of you know, Uh, North Carolina, many consider it to be God's backyard. I call it God's front yard because it's just so majestic, right? This is the first thing you want to see when you come to the United States on the East Coast. And here's some pictures just around where we live. And you'll notice in some of these pictures that there's clouds that have descended to the, the point of the valley. So you see all those peaks. Those are the mountain peaks. And then in the valleys, you see these clouds that roll in. And they're kind of intimidating, to be honest with you. Sometimes when I drive in these valleys, you can't see anything. And the clouds and the fog is just so so, uh, prominent and you can't see. And and it's scary. And it reminds me a lot about what the Christian life is like. Walking with the Lord. There's some peaks for sure. When we sing songs like the one we just sang, that's that's a peak. When you're baptized, for many of us, that's a peak when we become members of a church. Those, I would say, are peaks. When we have victories over our spiritual battles, when our marriages are healthy, when our children have grown up and have come to follow the Lord, those are peaks. But the Christian life is also filled with valleys. It's filled with disappointments and suffering. That's why Paul can say, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, that we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because the Christian life is filled with sorrows. The only difference that we have in our faith is that we have hope. Whereas we look at the world around us and it appears as though things are decaying and rapidly declining and there's no hope. But we brothers and sisters have hope, don't we? Even in the valleys. So when those clouds roll in and we can't see in front of us, We walk by faith, not by sight. That's a prominent theme even in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. That though we do not see the Lord, 
we still love him. We have not seen him, and yet we still believe. We rejoice. And that's because the Lord is with us. I, I think about Peter's life in particular. Peter, who wrote this epistle. Peter, who was part of Jesus' intimate circle with James and John, and then who was in the broader group of the 12 disciples. I think about Peter's peaks and valleys, and I think about how when Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, you can read those passages at home, when Jesus appears before them with Moses and Elijah and his face changes, Jesus' face changes, and he's radiant and shining and, and filled with glory, Peter doesn't know what to say, so he says, Lord, can we, can we build you a tent? I mean, what would you say? I wouldn't say, can I build you a tent? But Peter says, out of being confounded and just filled with terror and fear, Lord, can we build you, Elijah, and Moses a tent? We want to prolong this experience of your glory. And whether Peter was right or wrong to say that, after having just declared that Jesus is the Christ, and after having told Jesus and rebuking him for saying that he's going to his death, and Jesus having rebuked Peter back and saying, stay behind me, Satan. Here is Peter on this mountain, literally on a peak, and seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And he says, let me build you a tent because I want to experience this for a much longer period of time. I know we're going to have to go back down to the valley. I want to stay on the peak as long as possible. But then what happens earlier in the gospel, for instance, in Matthew, when Peter is walking on the water and he's doing that by faith. And then Jesus says, keep your eyes on me, Peter. That's all you got to do. And Peter, what does Peter do? He looks, the text says he looks at the waves and is filled with fear. And then he starts sinking. Isn't that a valley? When we take our eyes off Christ and all of a sudden we start sinking and we are filled with fear about what's going to happen. I'm going to be overwhelmed by the treacherous waters of life. Or what about in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Luke 22, that all tell the same tragic story of Peter's denial of Jesus. When Peter says, I, I, I mean, a little girl comes up to Peter and says, wait, I saw you with the man from Galilee. You're one of his followers. And Jesus is, and, and Peter of Jesus, I mean, is afraid of this little girl and says, I don't know Jesus. What are you talking about? I mean, just a, a peculiar situation that Peter finds himself in to be afraid of a little girl. And yet, he still denies Jesus. Well, what about us? When we deny Jesus by lifestyle choices and, and the sin that we choose over Christ. In many ways that we have denied Jesus in our own lives. Or we see others denying Jesus. Perhaps not blatantly, but maybe religiously. We'd rather work for our salvation than trust that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient. Isn't that a denial of Jesus' work on our behalf? And so, Peter's life shows us the peaks and valleys of what it means to follow Christ. Thankfully, Jesus did not abandon Peter, right? He restores Peter. At the end of the Gospel of John, he says, Peter, love my sheep. Do what I have called you to do. Love the sheep. Love my people. And so now in this passage here, 
Peter is answering, I think, one of the most important questions of the Christian life. And perhaps one of the questions that I have asked more than any other question when I've gone through peaks and valleys. See, when you're going through peaks, you get a a false sense that everything's okay. You can. You could be singing here this morning and realize everything is going to be okay. But you still have sin and issues that you need to deal with in your heart. Or perhaps you're in the valley and you think, there's no way I'm going to come out of this. Well, this passage, I think, reassures you that, yes, you can come out of that. Not only can you come out of it, but even in your suffering in the valley, God is with you. He promises to never forsake us. And so, the, the most important question, I think one of the most important questions that I've asked myself in peaks and valleys is this. Am I born again? Am I truly a Christian? Now that might be a peculiar question you might be thinking because we often ask God, why? Why is this happening to me? That's a typical question when we're suffering, right? Why? Why is this happening? Or perhaps when things are going well, we're saying, Lord, why is this happening? Is this going to last long? But I don't think that's one of the most important questions. I think one of the most important questions is, am I really a Christian? Am I really born again? Here's why. God never fails. And so why is God doing this to me? In many ways, is kind of an unnecessary question. Because God knows exactly what he's doing. We're the problem. It's still an important question to ask. And many times throughout the Psalms, we see this as an important question. Why is this happening? The book of Job is all about that question. Why did this happen? Why did Job have to lose his children, his livelihood, his, his home? Why did he have to suffer? The answer is, God knows what he's doing. Don't question God. But we're the problem, right? Because we have no faith. We need to go to God and we need to to ask him, how do I know if I'm born again? How do I know? Because everything that's going on in my life right now, all of my suffering makes me doubt you. And what I need is not doubt, but faith. How do I get faith? God gives it. Are we ready to receive it? And this is what this passage is about, what it means to be born again. That's why I've titled it Being Born Again, because as a Christian, as you're asking yourself along the way, am I really born again? Am I really a Christian? That answer becomes more more clear, doesn't it? You can point to things. You can say, I know I'm a Christian because five years ago when this happened, I trusted the Lord. I prayed. I depended on him. But more importantly, the reason why you should trust that you are born again is because of what this passage says. Let's go to the first thing that we see here. So the question we want to ask, we want to ask five, but the first thing we want to see is, how can a person be born again? That's the first question. How can a person be born again? Here's why you should be certain that you're born again. Let this be an encouragement to you. The first thing, the first answer is, God causes your born-again nature 
by his mercy. Isn't that amazing? Again, just like I don't have to depend on me saying clever things so that you can be impressed by God's word, you don't have to try to be a clever person by trying to earn God's salvation. You know why? God causes it by his mercy. Look at there, look there in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It says it right there. I'm not making this up. How did he cause it? By his mercy. But then again, we see that God causes our born-again nature, he causes it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's anything you need to base your salvation off of, it's those two things. His mercy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you born again? Do you believe in God's mercy? He didn't give you his justice because if he did, we would all be wiped out. He gave you his mercy and he gave Christ his justice on the cross for our sake. But he also raised Jesus from the dead, which is why it says that we have a living hope. It's not a living hope because we're active and involved and and making our faith work. It's living because Jesus is alive. What does that mean, though? Should you stop praying and should you stop evangelizing? Should you stop reading the scriptures? No. Because if you stop doing those things, all you're you're saying is that I don't believe in God's mercy and I don't believe in the resurrection. I believe in my ability. That's why you pray, though. Because of God's mercy and because of the resurrection. Did you know that God hears you when you pray? Did you know that when you pray in the power of the resurrection, God hears you? That's powerful. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Are you born again? Do you believe that? When you're on the peaks, when you're in the valleys, do you believe that, yes, it's God's mercy and the resurrection that supports me? I remember um, 15, 20 years ago, I was helping my brothers remodel a bathroom at my parents' house, and it's the same bathroom that's there today. You can go and see my handiwork. Um, And I remember I was tasked with doing plumbing as a nine-year-old. And you can imagine how this goes, right? I was sitting there trying to connect. I was putting the, the little gasket on the toilet and trying to pick up this toilet to put it on there, and it wasn't seated right. It wasn't seated right. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? So the toilet wasn't sitting on the gasket. And on top of that, I didn't tighten all the bolts. So when you flushed it, what happened? Well, that is so bad, right? I mean, you think, wow, for a nine-year-old, he can't even figure that out. I mean, I was nine years old. Come on. And I don't know why they chose me to do that, but they did. Maybe to see what would happen. And it was, it was funny. It was, yeah, it was funny. But here's the point. God is not like some plumber you hire who does a subpar job and who can't figure out your salvation. We don't look to God and say, you've done a subpar job in saving me. 
I need, to, I need to take it from here, Lord. My brothers had to come and clean up my handiwork, but we don't ever have to clean up God's handiwork. Because what he did for us by his mercy and through the resurrection is sufficient. So the first question, how can a person be born again? A person is born again by the mercy of God and by the resurrection. I invite you to this morning, if you've never believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to believe. It happened. It's historical. And to believe that God can have mercy even on you, though you may be utterly sinful, or though you might think you're too righteous to be forgiven. All are welcome. Repent, believe. But the second question we want to ask is, what does being born again provide? What does it provide? What does being born again provide? Again, I want to draw your attention to verse 3. It guarantees, being born again guarantees, first of all, a living hope. There it is. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And I would commend our faith to you, brothers and sisters, friends, because it is a living hope. A living hope means that when we're going through life's biggest trials, just like these brothers and sisters were, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, guiding us. At the end of the tunnel, there's always going to be light for the Christian because Jesus is at the end of the tunnel. Bright shining, filled with glory, in a resurrected body, waiting for us. I, we were walking out this morning from my parents' house and my daughter Sophia, who just learned the word die, uh, saw a frog that was dead on the sidewalk. And she looked at it and she said, frog, die. And I thought, well, that's super cute that she said that. But she's starting to realize things are not right in the world. And Noah knows what death is. Our bodies are decaying. The virus has taken lives. Our friends and family have gone, either to be with the Lord or we don't know. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures that all creation and that we who believe in him will be restored when all is said and done. In heaven, there's going to be creatures everywhere. Creation's going to be renewed. Life is going to be teeming. We're going to be in our resurrected bodies. There's not going to be any viruses. There's not going to be any pain or suffering. It's going to be glory. But for now, we experience it, don't we? We experience a life that is mainly hopeless because it is in rejection of Jesus Christ. But not us, brothers and sisters, right? We have a living hope. I'm not afraid of death anymore because if I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm not afraid if somebody comes and takes my life because Jesus says, be more afraid of the one who can take your life and send your soul to hell. 
Don't be afraid of the person who could just take your life. Be afraid of the one who gives you life forever. Brothers and sisters, I again commend the Christian faith because all other religions are hopeless. They do not have a resurrected Jesus Christ at the center of the faith. But we do. So, being born again guarantees a living hope. But being born again also seals an inheritance. It seals an inheritance. It's right there in the text. He has caused us to be born again, not only to a living hope, but to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for you. I love that. I think Peter there is probably alluding to what Jesus said in John when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the verb is what in Greek is called a perfect verb, meaning that it's an action done at one time with ongoing results, meaning that Jesus didn't just go up and tidy the home in heaven for us. And that's, that's it. It's done. Jesus is in heaven currently right now making intercession for us. Do you know what that means? He's praying to the Father on our behalf. Man, I, I might not have a lot of friends that pray for me. You might not have a lot of friends that pray for you. But the one friend that matters is praying for you. Jesus Christ prays for you. He makes intercession. He stands on your behalf as a representative saying, he has believed, she has believed, they are righteous. Father, guard their hearts. Satan has asked to sift them. But I'm protecting them. That's what Jesus said to Peter, by the way. He said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And guess what, Peter? It's going to happen. He's going to get the best of you. And, and you know what? When, not if, you are restored. But when you are restored. Jesus tells Peter, when you are restored, go and encourage the brothers. Tell them, I was sifted like wheat. And Jesus guarded my soul. Friends, brothers, sisters, when we're sifted like wheat, what do you look forward to? To this inheritance to the promise that Jesus has prepared a place for me. And listen to this, it's imperishable. It is free from death and decay. It's undefiled. It is free from uncleanness and impurity. It is unfading. It is free from time. It does not expire like your milk in the fridge. It is everlasting. Remember what Jesus said, do not put your treasure where the thief can come and, the, and, the mo- and steal it and, and the moth can come and destroy it. But where should you store your treasure? Where it will last forever. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Don't you want this treasure? This inheritance, this promise that we will be with the Lord forever? This guarantee that I will be in the face of the Lord no matter what happens in this life. So it secures a living hope. It secures an inheritance. And finally, it secures a future salvation. I love this. 
Look at, the, look at verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He has caused you, us, to be born again. And who is he talking to? Who's the you here? It's you, later on in verse 5 it says, you who are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen to this, past, present, future. In one verse, you got past, present, and future as it relates to salvation. In the past, through our faith, we are being prepared for salvation ready. Now just stop there for a second. Is this a prepackaged salvation that was made ready for us? Absolutely. And what does Peter have in mind here? Salvation is all of redemptive history. From the moment God created us, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and then the whole biblical storyline of Israel's rep- repeated failures of obeying and following, the lo- uh, following God, and then f- asking for forgiveness and being restored, to Jesus coming and finally offering the sacrifice once and for all, to the time Peter's writing this letter, all of that redemptive history, this history from A to B, all of that was planned on purpose for us. It is a ready salvation. It is already planned. All you do, all I do, is come and say, I believe. Peter has in mind not only redemptive history, but precisely the moment Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. Not only that, but after Jesus died three days later when he rose from the dead. Not only that, when Jesus ascended to heaven and stood at the right hand of the Father. All of that is redemptive history. And guess what he says here? This is in the past. This already happened, brothers and sisters. But look in the present. He says, by God's power, being guarded. This is a present active verb. It's, it's happening right now. As you sit here listening to me, you are being guarded. 24-hour security for you. It's 24-hour security for your soul. Isn't this reassuring? That right now, in this moment, God is guarding you for a salvation that has already happened. For what? Why? Look at this. In the future, this salvation is to be revealed in the last time. In one way, salvation hasn't already happened because although Jesus died and rose from the dead, he has not come back to judge the world and to redeem his people once and for all and to restore the world to a new creation. That's to happen. So where do you want to be on that day when that happens? Do you want to be with the Lord when he says, come, come to me? I made you, I created you, and I gave you new life. You are mine. Or do you want to be part of those who God says, I, I never knew you, there, and there's not enough room now. The house is full. The inheritance has been served, and you're not an heir. Right now is the moment to say, I'm looking in the future and seeing the fact that Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, I want to be an heir. I want to be part of that salvation plan. And you can do it through faith.
in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the key here, isn't it? That, Paul, that Peter says, through faith, this is all yours. This living hope, this inheritance, this salvation, it's yours through faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the second question. The third question we want to ask is why do people need to be born again? So why? You might be asking, okay, this sounds good. What Peter's saying here sounds good, but why is it necessary? Why do we need to be born again? The answer is simple. And I think it's in the text based on what I said from, the, from what salvation means. The first thing is because of sin. Why do we need to be saved? What's this whole redemptive plan about? Why is God trying to buy us back? Why is God trying to show us the way to reach him and to have fellowship with him forever? Why? Because of our sin. When we talk about salvation and the need for salvation, we're talking about the need to be forgiven of our sin. All of us have sinned. This morning, on the way here, Right now, maybe. You will sin. Tonight. Tomorrow. That's a guarantee. And that's why we need this salvation. That's why we need to be born again. Because we sin. Look what the text says in verse 5. We're, we are, through faith, coming to a salvation by God's power. But in verse 9, again, the goal that Peter is writing about is obtaining a salvation for our souls. That's the trajectory for the Christian life, salvation. We defeat sin when we have faith in Jesus Christ. We're defeated by sin when we turn from Christ. Don't you see that Peter knows this firsthand? Peter experienced this. He knew, yes, I, I walk with the Messiah for three years and it still didn't hit me until after his death and resurrection that he is truly the Messiah and that he is truly the Christ. And if Peter walked with Jesus, brothers and sisters, if he walked and experienced the glory of Jesus Christ, he says in 2 Peter, by the way, how much more do we, by having God's word, do we have access to Jesus Christ? You're saying to me that Peter, who walked with Jesus Christ, is at a greater disadvantage than us today who have God's word, but did not walk with Jesus Christ personally. How is that possible? Because God's word is sufficient for us. God's word is sufficient. We don't need a time travel to say, I wonder what it was like to be with Jesus and walk the earth with him, although that would be nice. But in 2 Peter, if you read 2 Peter chapter 1, it's a mind-blowing statement. Peter says, the glory we experienced when we saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw the glory. And I'm telling you, you have a much better word today through the word of God. Wow. Wow. You mean I can be closer to God by reading the Bible every day 
than being on the Mount of Transfiguration face to face? Wow. And Peter's saying, look, I have walked it. I was a sinner. I did it too. And here's what I'm calling you to. A salvation where your sin can be forgiven. A salvation where your sin can be totally taken care of by the cross of Jesus Christ. A salvation where when you sin, God has a refuge, an escape for you. We don't only need to be born again because of sin, though. We need to be born again because of suffering. We need to be born again because of suffering. That's a strange way to phrase that, right? We need to be born again because we suffer. But again, remember I told you that the question I consider to be one of the most important when I suffer is, am I born again? Because there's nothing that tugs more deeply for our family so far than with our children suffering. Physically or spiritually. When Sophia and Tabitha were both in the hospital, I would look at Esther and I would say, honey, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I have such a strong tug in my heart to care for my children more than I care about the Lord right now. I'm just being honest with you. And it was in those moments where Esther just spoke wisely and said, honey, if you're asking that question, you're likely born again. It's a concern. You're torn. What about your wayward child? There would be nothing. I would, I would give my salvation so that my children could be saved. I would forsake the Lord if in exchange my children could be saved. We sometimes think, right? I mean, that's what Paul said in Romans 9. He said, I would rather be accursed so that my brothers could be saved. If you have that thought and that feeling and that tug, you're likely a Christian. Because you value your salvation. You know what it means to come out of sin and suffering and to experience the Lord. And you just want that for everybody else. I tell you, there's nothing, there's nothing more for, for me so far in life that has been more tormenting than to see my children suffer and to wonder, am I really a Christian? Suffering either draws us near to the Lord or draws us away. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. There's no middle ground here for the Christian. We don't, we don't just drift to the Lord. Holiness is not automatic. But we do drift away from the Lord, don't we? Which is why we need to be born again. There's nothing like suffering to do that in this world. To, to, like a megaphone, C.S. Lewis called it, a megaphone saying, God is there, listen, walk, look, God is there. Suffering is a megaphone, isn't it? It gets our attention. I might be still in my 20s, but I, I don't feel as young as I used to 10 years ago. And you might be in your 70s, and you might think, I'm more young now than I ever felt in my life. If you feel like that, then give me your secret because I want to know how, does, how do you do that. My point is that life is going toward and trending toward suffering. 
and are you ready to deal with it? You know the saying that if you have not suffered in life, you will either suffer eventually, you've already suffered, or you're just too young, right? You just don't know what suffering is. Why do we desire to be adults when we were children? Now when we're adults, we're like, what it would be to give to what I would give to be a child, to not have to worry about life. But there's that's not the option that you should seek as a Christian to desire to be a child again. Your desire should be, wow, what I would give to suffer with the Lord. If here's here's the thing about Peter's suffering and, and what Peter's highlighting here. You think that we think that. Because Jesus is Lord and because he's the reigning king supreme, that we won't ever suffer. That he'll protect us. That's how we pray, right? On a road trip, we say, Lord, please protect our travels. That's a good thing to pray. There's nothing wrong with that. Spiritual. You're asking for God's protection. But why do we feel so entitled to being protected physically when Jesus himself suffered excruciating physical pain and died. Why do you think that as a Christian you are free from suffering? That's the, that's the problem with the prosperity gospel. If you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. What I'm telling you here and what the text is saying here is you will suffer. In just the next chapter, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says... Why should you suffer as an unrighteous man? There's nothing commendable about that. Instead, you should do good, experience suffering, and enjoy that. Why? Because that's what we were meant for. And then he, he says right there in the text, in just a couple verses down, because Jesus was reviled. And if Jesus was reviled, if he suffered, if he, if he even died... What do you think is coming for us as Christians? We expect it. We expect suffering. In this text, the suffering that that they experience is of various kinds of suffering. So we're not even talking about a particular form of suffering like persecution. Maybe in our lifetime we will never experience persecution that leads to physical death. But the various trials here in verse 6 and 7 that Peter's talking about, affects each of us. It's cancer. It's, it's heart disease. It's being ostracized by your family. It's going to work and having to face the ridicule of your workers, co-workers. It's having to be a good manager and having to deal with employees that, are not work, that don't have a hard work ethic. It's, it's the type of suffering that you experience when you're at school and you have to study and you keep failing and you don't know what to do. These are all the different types of sufferings that we experience. Not all Christian life is suffering, but a good part of it is. And that's why we need to know if we're born again. That's why we need to be born again. You will either drift away from the Lord or you will get closer to him. And if you're born again, you will go closer to the Lord. Why? Because he draws near to you when you suffer. I love what Hebrews chapter 13 says. It says, he has promised he will never leave you or forsake you. 
So we need to be born again because of sin and suffering. But the fourth question we need to ask is, how does being born again change a person? How does being born again change you? We've kind of hinted at it, but there's two main ways. And you can see this in the text in verse 3, in verse 6, and verse 8. The first thing we see is people are able to rejoice despite sin and suffering. People are able to rejoice. That's how, that's how God changes you. When you're suffering, you're not just an optimist. You don't just say, grass is greener on the other side. Glass is always half full. That's cheap compared to what Peter's offering us here. He's not just offering us blissful optimism. He's offering us a living hope. A hope that when I'm going through sin personally, corporately, or struggling and suffering and praying for those who are suffering, that I can rejoice. I can rejoice. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You can write that down. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the Christian motto, isn't it? I remember being in the hospital with, with Tabitha, and we befriended some of the nurses there. And I, I just love giving nurses. If you're ever in the hospital and you have a, a good nurse, and, and you really, or a nurse is taking care of, I commend you, brothers and sisters, to give them like a Starbucks gift card or something, a box of chocolates. Um, I, I remember bringing boxes of chocolates and Starbucks gift cards, and one nurse came up to Esther and me, and we be, became good friends over a period of three months, and she asked, why, why are we so optimistic about what's going on? And I just thought, that's a, such, a strange, such a strange experience for her. Because just the last week, we heard a woman wailing down the, down the hall who had lost her child. That's not the experience in the NICU for the most part. So why are we so optimistic? And I, I, it took me a while to think about it, and I thought, I guess it's because the Lord is with us. And he's going to see it through, no matter which way this goes. And Esther and I, I think, felt an overwhelming sense of peace knowing that people were praying for us and knowing that we had people that loved us and that were caring for us. But I just remember thinking, what a strange experience that, that we are rejoicing in a place where there's constant sadness and, and death. Isn't that such a, a clear picture of what the Christian life is? We're in this world, it's chaotic. It's, it's almost like every time you turn on the news, there's, something's gonna blow up or something's gonna get destroyed or some social movement is happening and we're our Christians in the midst of that. They're rejoicing. And they're saying this is not all there is to life. The grass is definitely gonna be greener on the other side but that's because Jesus Christ is gonna make all things new. And so, Christians rejoice. You might find yourself lacking in the joy of the Christian life. Listen, how, listen to how Peter describes this joy. I love this. In verse 8, Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy 
and he describes it, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's a glorified joy. I don't even really even know what that means, to be honest with you. I know what the words, the definitions mean, but I don't really even know what that looks like. Especially if I'm surrounding myself with sin and with suffering, I don't know what it means to have a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. You know how you get this joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory? The more you dwell on the Lord. The less you dwell on the world, the more you dwell on the Lord. The second thing we see here is that people are able to love and believe in Jesus Christ without seeing him. That's how we know we're changed. That's how being born again changes a person. Look at what he says here. Though you have not seen him in the past, meaning that the people Peter is writing to have not seen Jesus, likely, physically, in the body. Though you have not seen him, you love him. It's a, an argument from, from the lesser to the greater, isn't it? Because Peter saw Jesus and loves him. He has no excuse. But you, you haven't seen Jesus, and you love him? That's amazing. Do you love Jesus? When you read that, do you think, yeah, I, I love Jesus? Or do you read that and think, That's, that was nice for the, the, the Christians that Peter was writing to? The text is meant for you when you read this to think, yes, amen, I love Jesus too. I haven't seen him, I love him. Being born again will change you. When you read this text, you'll think, I haven't seen him, but I love him. Or look at what it says next. It says, though you do not now see him currently in the present, in your suffering, in your sin, though you don't see him now, you believe in him. Wow. Is Peter calling us to radical faith without sight? Yeah, he is. He's calling us to believe and to have hope without looking, without seeing. Remember what Jesus said, John chapter 20. He said this, listen to this very carefully. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus said that. Are you blessed because you have not seen but you have believed? So finally then we want to ask the fifth question. We've asked several questions right now. Let me just remind you of the questions. How can a person be born again? Number one. Number two, what does being born again provide? Number three, why do you need to be born again? Number four, how does being born again change a person? And finally, how can you know if you are born again? Remember, I told you that we can trust that God's handiwork in, in making us born again is good. He didn't mess up. Right? He didn't mess up. But there's other ways that we can know as Christians, other markers that I think are going to be really encouraging. And we've done most of these markers just this morning while, while we were here in corporate worship together. Maybe if you were online, you, you did this with us as well. The first way you can know if you are born again is through faith and trust. 
faith and trust. In verse 5, 7, and 9, this theme of faith keeps coming up. Look in verse 5. It says, you are being guarded through faith. In verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This faith And more on that in a minute about tested faith. But uh, look at verse 9. You are obtaining, by believing in Jesus Christ, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith. What is that? The salvation of your soul. Again, this theme of faith is so important in the Christian life. Trust. And by faith, I don't mean just belief for belief. I believe, I believe, I believe. I mean trust. I mean, you are in the swimming pool. Noah, Noah's starting to learn how to swim. And he stands on the ledge and I say, jump, just trust me. And it takes a long time for him to trust me. Because he, cause one time I, he jumped and I just let him fall. But uh, he, so he, he remembers that. He says, You're, you know, you weren't faithful in the past. So how can I trust you now? Um, but he, he trusts, he jumps, he knows. Okay, daddy's going to catch me. I know. Does he know all about my muscles that are holding him up and that I am sturdy in three feet of water. He doesn't know about that. We don't know everything about God and how he's going to maintain his promises and hold them. But what we do know is that he's been faithful in the past forever. If he's been faithful in the past, he's been faithful in the present, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? He's going to suddenly turn and not be faithful? That's ridiculous. We look at as Christians, at the evidence. And we say the evidence shows that God has been faithful throughout history. So tomorrow he's going to be faithful. Do you trust that the Lord and his salvation is enough for you? The second way we can know that we are born again is through our worship. And we read the first part of chapter, or verse 3, but look at it again. Don't miss these doxologies. Doxologies means a word of praise. Don't miss this. In verse 3, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Exclamation point. Don't miss that. And I think what Peter's doing here is he's writing this and perhaps describing what God is like, that he is blessed, that he is praiseworthy, But I don't think Peter's just doing that. I think Peter is saying, join me before you get through the rest of the letter in praising God first and foremost. Why? Listen to the first verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Don't miss these either because we often like to go to the meat of the text and the body, but we miss the beginning. Listen to this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Elect Who's he writing to? Elect exiles, those who have been chosen by God. Of the dispersion, meaning that these are people all over the place, and he lists a couple places. They're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's beautiful. It's Trinitarian. The Father and his foreknowledge. The Spirit and his sanctification. 
and the obedience that comes from Jesus' sprinkling of the blood. What do you say to that? Get on with it, Peter. Come on, I already heard this. No. He says, stop, hold on a second. What I just said is pretty awesome. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how that flows? He is calling you to praise God. He's inviting you, saying, praise God with me. Because what I just said is awesome, and what I'm about to say is awesome. It is all filled. It is worthy of stopping and praising. So we worship. Do you worship God like this? Do you stop and say, I just got to praise the Lord right now. I've just got to do it. I just saw the most beautiful sunset. I just saw this beautiful sunset. I just saw this beautiful animal in the, in the wild. I don't know whatever your thing is. When you see it and you say, that reminds me of God's grace and mercy. When you see somebody come to the Lord. When you see your kid take their first steps. When you see that life is, is going well, that God has helped you get the job or get the girl or the guy or whatever, do you stop and say, this is owing to the fact that God, the Father, and Jesus Christ are worthy of praise? Maybe that's why we love when children are born. We think, wow, life, who can do that? God. Stop and worship. Stop and worship. That's how you know if you're born again. You stop and you worship. The third thing, though, is that you have confidence that you are being guarded and kept by God. That's how you know you're born again. You have confidence that you are being kept by God, that he is holding you fast, that nothing can let you go. That firm grasp of your hand. Maybe sometimes God is carrying you through a burden, through a trial, through sin. The confidence. And notice here, I want to be careful about our confidence in God. I want to be careful with with phrasing it like that. I want us rather to think about the confidence that God, because of who he is and who he promises to be, will do what he says. I want you to have confidence in God, not just confidence that you will be faithful. Confidence that God is going to hold you and that he is guarding you. God promised to do this. I'm going to trust him. I have confidence. God is good and he will do it. And finally, listen to this in verse 7. We know that we are born again when our faith has been tested and proven. It's through proven faith. Listen to this again in verse 7. We rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, some some translations say that we must suffer. You have been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that, why have you been grieved? Why does God allow sin and suffering to continue in your life as a Christian? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory 
and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter gives you an illustration. He says, listen, precious gold, it is more, faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. We, you know, when you get gold, you can test it by burning it and seeing if it tarnishes or if, it, if something happens and there's an impurity. Well, Peter's saying here, listen, gold is valuable, even in today's market. What about this? Your faith, is that valuable? Remember what Peter says in Acts. He says, listen, I, I don't have gold or silver, but what I do have is more valuable. It's faith. And not just faith, just I believe and I believe. It's faith that has been tested. It has gone through the fires of life. And at the end of it, it didn't wither. At the end of it, there was this massive gold bar, brick of faith that was pure. And that was, although looked like it had been burned, survived. You've been a Christian for long enough. You've got burn marks. But you know what? Your faith is precious. It's proven. It's tested. So, how do you know you're born again? You've been tested. And the Lord gave you the strength to pass. And here you are today. Hearing God's word. And, and you're saying, yes, I have been tested. And the Lord has been good. I'm born again. It's the most important question I think we can ask ourselves, one of the most important questions. Am I really born again? Do I really know the Lord? And it's one of those questions that will come back for as long as you're a Christian. You may have the certainty, just as you're certain the sun is going to come up tomorrow, that your faith is strong and that you are born again. Nevertheless, it's a question that we need to ask ourselves when we're at the peaks of life and when we're in the valleys. Why? So that our faith, being born again, will prove to be filled with glory, filled with praise, filled with honor for the glory of God. And I hope that's true for us, brothers and sisters. I hope that's true for Sheridan Hills. I hope that's true for churches in this area. I hope it's true as we navigate the treacherous waters of culture, of life, of suffering, of sin. And I hope it's true until the Lord Jesus comes back. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you, praise you for this word. Lord, we thank you that your word is timely, that it is good, and that we can bank all of our lives on it. I pray for my friends here who don't know you, who are hearing this and thinking, well, I guess I, guess I can wait to be born again. I, I've still got my life to live. I've still got youth that I want to work out, and I've still got a lot of mistakes I want to make before I make a commitment to the Lord. Lord, I, I pray that you save people from that mindset. I pray, Lord, that you would you would save people and not allow them to delay. Even this morning, Lord, I pray if there are people here this morning who have not called upon you with faith and trust that they would do that right now, that they would repent and realize that their sin has caused a rift and that their suffering is unbearable 
and hopeless without you. I pray, Father, for uh, you to awaken spiritual life in these moments. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters who've known you for many years, some for over 50, some for less than an hour. I pray, Father, for those to be strengthened and encouraged that you are guarding our hearts, that you are strengthening us even in this moment, that you are preparing a place for us. You've given us a living hope, an inheritance, a salvation. Father, encourage us. Give us joy. And Father, I pray that Sheridan Hills and other churches would be radically impacted by your word, that that we would rejoice in trials, that we would worship in blessing and in curses, that we would we would come to you with, with trust because you are keeping us and guarding our hearts and that we would also know that when we are tested, it's because you love us and that you care for us. So Father, I pray that you do all these things for your glory, for the good of this church until you come back, Lord. Come quickly, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?